And so instead of just paying the bill, I said, you know what, let's have some fun and let's learn something. So we decided to dispute that first bill. And the kind of answers we got just were, 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 were unbelievable. There's nothing worse than paying $100 for an aspirin than to realize you never swallowed that aspirin. Uh, that, that disciplined, methodical, data-driven approach to problem-solving and decision-making has in many ways uh, shaped everything I've done since. Welcome to the Beyond Capital Podcast. In our purpose-driven world, leadership is increasingly crucial. Now more than ever, stakeholders are demanding the integration of social values and causes in everything from shoes to soap to investments. We are bringing you the stories of leaders that are marrying profit with purpose. I'm Eva Yazari, CEO of Beyond Capital. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Appreciate. And this is the Beyond Capital Podcast. Today's guest is David Silverstein. David is the founder and CEO of Amaze PBC, a company dedicated to empowering people to take charge of their own health care. Using an employer-sponsored service, patients can access all the information they need to easily manage their own health care. Previously, David founded Broken Healthcare, a nonprofit helping patients dispute egregious medical bills. Welcome, David. It's so great to have you today. Yeah, great to be here. So let's dive in. Let's dive in. So David, you started your career working as a nuclear submarine officer. Is that correct? I sure did. That okay. was a long time ago. Yeah, well, I actually served on a nuclear submarine for 30 days when I was a midshipman back at the Naval Academy. And I was curious, where were you stationed? I spent most of my time out of, uh, out of Norfolk. Okay. And is it true what the, what the rumors are that there are certain spots, the audience wants to know, is it true that there are certain spots on a submarine that if you stand there too long, bad things could happen to you due to the nuclear exposure? Uh, <laughs> um, the, uh, intent is that uh, the answer is no to that, but, uh, there are certainly places, uh, you know, you, you want to avoid because we know what's, uh, what's right on the other side of the wall. That's right. So, sure. Some and, places are better than others. And, and, um, let the record show that David has four children. So that's, <laughs> that's right. So everything's worked out. Um, as I was also looking through your, through your resume, um, I, I noticed the uh, stint you had at Seagate as director of Six Sigma. And uh, is that right? Yeah, um, that's actually where a lot of uh, what I do today got started. So to me, nothing says process nerd like the title director of Six Sigma. Maybe that's why I didn't last, uh, last that long. In that <laughs> well, that's why I wanted to dive into it because sometimes people do that for the exposure into that space. And sometimes, and I wanted to get a little bit of a feel for your perspective on operations, on business and what your sensibility is for that. And so maybe you could use that question as a springboard for telling us a little bit more about your basic thinking when you're in a business situation. Sure. Um, Six Sigma actually really was terrific for me. Uh, After I left the Navy, I spent about a year with a small company in New York and then I went to Seagate. And when Seagate asked me to go over to Singapore and lead the implementation of Six Sigma across its Asia-Pacific operations, where we had 60,000 people, I I knew absolutely nothing about it. But it it didn't take long for me to realize 
that uh, there really was a more objective way to uh, drive business and to be very data-driven and, and objective in the decision-making. And over time, Six Sigma went from uh, something that you do to improve a manufacturing process that may take months to really shaping the way I think about decisions, sometimes decisions that I have to make in a matter of, uh, of minutes. And so uh, that, that disciplined, methodical, data-driven approach to problem-solving and decision-making has in many ways uh, shaped everything I've done since. Great. I, I'd love to turn towards healthcare um, because I think in, in the U.S. we have a, a bit of a healthcare crisis. Americans spend an estimated three and a half trillion on healthcare every year. And the insurance process, I didn't, I didn't know this until doing research for this podcast, but it's responsible for more than 25% of the overall cost of healthcare. And something else that you know, doesn't surprise me is that 60% of all family ba- bankruptcies are related to medical expenses. You also founded a nonprofit called Broken Healthcare. What was your personal experience uh, that led you to start that nonprofit? Sure. Well, you know, I've been working with uh, uh, hospital systems and insurance carriers since very early in my career, shortly after I left Seagate Technology and started a management consulting firm leading big companies through the implementation of Six Sigma. So I thought I knew how the healthcare system worked, and, and I'd been working for those payers and providers inside the system. It wasn't until, I don't know, I guess it was uh, six or seven years ago uh, that my daughter was playing basketball. She was maybe 15 at the time, and uh, she took a charge. She's a tiny little uh, kid and went flying back on her butt and smacked her head on the floor, and it's off to the emergency room for a possible concussion. Uh, she was fine. It was a very minor concussion, and the bill came a few weeks later for $12,154.70. The number is just seared in my wow. memory. And um, my, my daughter, uh, always a curious kid, is looking over my shoulder at the, this bill, and, and her eyes are just popping out of her head at, at a $12,000 bill, and she started asking me questions. And as I was explaining to her how the system worked, I couldn't believe what I was hearing, and I realized there's just something different about saying things out loud to your kid than there is knowing them in your own mind. And so explaining our crazy system to my daughter you know, started making me angry. She's looking at me like I had two heads. And so instead of just paying the bill, I said, you know what, let's have some fun and let's learn something. So we decided to dispute that first bill, and the kind of answers we got just were, 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 were unbelievable. Simple answers like, uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Silverstein, but our prices are proprietary, you know, to wow. which I answered, I, I, answered I, I understand perfectly. My credit card number is proprietary, too. And as we went on disputing bills and learning more and more, uh, we realized there were a lot of other people out there that needed our help, too, which is what took us down the path of uh, forming the nonprofit in the first place. How did you identify the others that needed your help? Well, you know, that's actually not, not so easy. Um, First, it was uh, Kaylee's bills, and then uh, friends and family, mm-hmm. you know, people who knew what we were doing, and, and we were able to, to test what we'd learned. Basically, we learned how to dispute a bill and how to make sure it never got paid without damage to our credit, without getting sued for the money. Uh, and then when we popped up um, the nonprofit, you know, we popped up a website, uh, and we started inviting people to uh, reach out to us and tell us that they needed help. And we wanted to help people 
But our main objective was we wanted to hear their stories. We wanted to use this to learn the system. We could not get answers out of hospitals, primarily, sometimes uh, physician practices, but mostly hospitals, because if you don't owe them money, they don't owe you answers. So we needed uh, people to come to us for help, and we dispute their bills, and then the process of disputing their bills, we would come to understand the system much, much better. And ultimately, our goal was not to be in the business of helping other people get out of paying their medical bills. Our goal was to learn enough about the system so we could figure out how to change it. And how many medical bills are wrong? What's the percentage of bills that are just wrong and should be disputed? Well, you know, it's interesting you ask wrong. So the federal government did a study uh, uh, some years ago and concluded that about 80% of hospital bills, not, not all medical bills, but 80% of hospital bills uh, had at least one error in them, meaning they're charging you for something that wasn't done. They're charging you the wrong price uh, for the, or they're charging for the wrong quantity. You know, your typical medical bill from a physician has one or two line items in it. So those aren't often too bad. Uh, it's the hospital bills. And I mean, you've seen the stories in NPR and the Washington Post and Wall Street Journal have all done stories uh, on the crazy uh, hospital bills, the $100 aspirins. Well, there's nothing worse than paying $100 for an aspirin than to realize you never swallowed that aspirin. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so, um, so yeah, but, but, uh, but, you know, they're not my numbers. I, I mean, I find something wrong with every hospital bill. Uh, you know, the federal government's numbers are somewhere up in the 80% range. You've said that people who have more information get better health care and spend less money. How did that lead you to, find, to found your new company, your current company, Amaze? Sure. Well, as I was helping people with their bills, uh, I could tell by the questions that people asked me or the situations that they found in that many Americans, very bright Americans, just fundamentally don't understand our system. Many doctors don't understand our system. The number of hospital CEOs who have never seen their hospital's charge master is staggering, and they don't even know how it's put together. So there's just a fundamental uh, misunderstanding among Americans about how to uh, manage their health care and how to navigate the system. At the same time, I was hearing you know, employers and folks in the insurance industry tell me, well, it's just too complicated for people to understand. And I said, wait a minute. I, I just don't, I don't buy this. You know, the typical supermarket has 50,000 uniquely barcoded items in it, 50,000. We buy things by the slice and by the pound, and by the package, and by the six-pack. We use coupons and loyalty cards. And nobody ever goes into a supermarket and says, this is too overwhelming. I can't figure out what to buy. I don't know if these prices are fair. Right? We handle it. Um, you have people, uh, you know, um, blue-collar workers with a high school education making $20 an hour, managing a family with two kids, uh, a car loan, and a mortgage, which, by the way, is a whole lot more challenging to do when you make forty or $50,000 a year than when you make $150,000 a year. Americans are really sharp. They manage their way through life. You don't need a PhD to manage uh, your health care. So I realized, one, people don't understand the system, but for decades we've been engineering the individual's role out of the, the system. We live in a world today where an insurance company tells us whether or not we need care. They call it medical necessity. They tell us where we can get that care. They call it a network. And they tell us how much will be paid for the care, usually after the fact. And so we've created a system that 
counts Americans out, but I don't believe, and the research confirms this, that Americans can't be good consumers of healthcare. And so I decided to start doing the research, and I found there was a, um, a broad body of research that comes out of the University of Oregon into a, a subject area called patient activation. And what the research says, and this has been confirmed by the Kaiser Foundation, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which are some of the more objective, independent uh, think tanks in the healthcare space. And what the research says is people with more knowledge, skill, and self-confidence to manage their own care, get better care, and pay less money for it at the same time. In other words, uh, better care and lower costs go together. Who who, who would have guessed that, right? Yeah. Um, and so I decided there's, there's a great need and nobody right now, nobody is, uh, nobody has an incentive to educate and support Americans in managing their own health care and making better decisions as a consumer. The whole system would like to keep us out of it, right? They want to shut us out of prices. They want to shut us out of information to quality measures. They want to, you know, the government and uh, insurance companies want to define value for us. They call it value-based care by saying they will pay uh, providers more if they deliver value to us. Well, they can't define value. We, we have to define that for ourselves. Yeah. I'm really impressed that you started a business based on your incredible passion. And I know you've also been an advocate for reforms in healthcare and you eventually in that advocacy made it to the White House last year to meet with President Trump. And it seems that that meeting was effective uh, because you wrote an executive order that was signed on that day. I'd love to know the feeling that was attached to having um, that executive order signed on the day that you you wrote it and presented it, but perhaps give us a a little bit of background what was the executive order? What were you advocating for? Sure. So I had tried to run some legislation here in, in Colorado that ultimately failed. And the legislation was designed to require absolute complete price transparency across the whole system from both uh, healthcare providers and payers, meaning insurance uh, companies. And the legislation ultimately uh, did not pass here in Colorado. But uh, some folks at the White House, in particular the White, uh, the, the president's uh, chief healthcare policy advisor, picked up on what we were doing here in Colorado and basically said, "Hey, you guys have figured out the language that is really needed in order to get this right. Will you help us?" Uh, so I, I'm, I think it's a, a stretch to say I wrote the executive order, although I did write a, a tremendous amount of the early drafts of it before the lawyers got their hands on it. And the main thing that I was really um, pushing for is that there was a lot of impetus from a lot of people to say, we need price transparency. But what I had discovered as a, a, a management consultant studying these things was that if we didn't get the language perfect and we didn't really understand exactly how the system worked, it, the, the uh, healthcare industry would just continue to, to game the system despite uh, seemingly good rules. And the main thing was we need the negotiated prices from the insurance carriers because that's where that's where uh, market economics takes place. It takes place at the margin, at the lowest price that's been negotiated for services. That's what creates competition, not average prices and estimated prices, but the negotiated prices from the insurance carriers who are theoretically negotiating best prices. So, so that's um, so that got baked into that uh, executive order that was signed on June 24th. And yeah, it was a it was um, you know a, a terrific experience. I think it was one of the bigger. Uh, orders the president has signed. There were 80 plus 
people as uh, invited as guests to uh, you know to witness the signing. And then in November, the uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services published the rules designed to take the president's order and turn them into actual rules. They're now being challenged in the courts, of course, because the industry will do anything to prevent these rules from taking effect. Uh, but um, but I think they actually have a decent chance of uh, surviving the court challenges. Did you get a copy of the pen? I do actually have a copy uh, of the pen. Uh, there were uh, two people asked to speak at, at that event standing next to the president. One was an economist. Uh, the other was a patient from out here in Colorado. Um, and uh, so she she spoke, said a few words about her experiences. Uh, the president gave her a pen and she insisted on uh, giving it to me, you know, having done all this and, and, and brought her there to speak at the White House. So I actually do have uh, the pen. And did they serve you McDonald's for lunch? <laughs> they did not. They okay. didn't serve lunch at all, actually. That, day. that <laughs> would be a little bit off course for the topic of healthcare. Aren't they, aren't they <laughs> famous right. for that? Oh, yeah. Our quick break. We're going to get back to Amaze in just a second, but a quick break for some a couple personal interest questions. Uh, first one, I don't know why I'm curious about this, but did you ever want to be a doctor at any point in your life? Me personally, uh, no. But, you know, I came kind of come from a family where my um, uh, my uncle, my father's brother, was a very prominent uh, physician in, in uh, New York City. Uh, my um, uh, father's father was a, a dentist. So I guess there was a little bit of that in the uh, family. Uh, one of my daughters is uh, hell-bent on becoming a uh a doctor, so but never, never had that interest myself. Okay, and do you have a favorite doctor TV show that you're addicted to? Um, you know, I'm a, a little partial to The Resident because uh, it was crafted after um, uh, Marty Macri, a surgeon out of Johns Hopkins, uh, who's a very good friend. Actually, uh, did a lot of the work with me on that executive order. Every time I was invited to the White House, Marty was there with me and he and I worked uh, together now. He's signed on as an advisor to both Broken Healthcare and uh, Amaze. So I'd have to put the resident uh, way up there. Okay, thank you. And so I'm picking up on super high energy coming from you. And I'm sure that the audience is picking that up as well. So when I get that feeling, I always want to learn a little bit about how somebody produces and sustains that kind of energy. And so I'm curious, how do you start each day? Um, you know, I, I, I get excited about each day. I've been, so I, as, as we talked before, so I, I went into the management consulting space back after I left Seagate Technology in 1999 um, and built a global management consulting firm. So I've been working with uh, big companies uh, on strategy, innovation, Lean and Six Sigma for 20 years. Uh, helping companies craft strategy, their vision, their mission, all the business school uh, type stuff, and much more sophisticated. I have never been associated with a company, um, including my own companies, that is as mission-driven as Amaze. Um, we've been hiring medical professionals now to to staff our, um, effectively our call center, which is here to be patients, partners in their uh, healthcare journey and management. And we've got people taking pay cuts from places they live elsewhere because they are so excited about uh, working here. It is just the most mission-driven, uh, you know. And 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 everybody says they have a mission and that they believe in their mission. But when you wake up every morning, really 
believing in your mission. That, that's something very special. I've never actually had it myself. Um, I've never seen it in any of my clients. And I think, uh, you know, I'm lucky to have stumbled upon that kind of opportunity in a maze. Can you unpack for us what a maze does and how it benefits employer employers and how employees are benefiting from the company? Sure. Let me, um, yeah, let me, maybe I'll try, I'll try to give you a really quick, um, example of a maze in, in action. Uh, so the first thing we do is we put people through classroom training. There are just some basic things that people need to learn about our healthcare system. So all these services, concierge medicine services, telemedicine services, uh, the, the more than 100,000 digital health apps that are out there, I think they all fall short because they essentially want to do things for you. They want to make everything easier for you. Well, you know what? Sometimes we have to take charge and do things ourselves, especially when it comes to our healthcare. So we start by actually putting people in the classroom. Then after teaching them some basics, we can provide them with all of the support that they need to make much better decisions. So for example, we teach in the classroom, there are four questions uh, that, that somebody should never forget. Now there's lots of episode-based uh, questions that are unique to any particular doctor's visit or medical condition, but four you should never forget. A few weeks after we tested that first class, I get a call from a guy on a, on a uh, Monday morning, and he says, Dave, it happened. It happened on Saturday, just like you said it was. And I said, Jason, calm, calm down. Tell me what happened. Well, he went on to explain that he had his uh, 13-year-old daughter in the ER on Saturday afternoon. She'd been playing basketball with the boys, just like my daughter was seven years ago, go figure, and she'd suffered a concussion. Well, Jason knew some things that I didn't know back when my daughter had that concussion resulting in the $12,000 bill because he had gone through a class. And so when the doctor said to him, it looks like a really minor concussion, we'll do a quick CT scan and we'll have you out of here uh, in less than an hour, Jason didn't do what 99.9% .9 of parents would do, which is say, okay. Uh, some would even say thank you. Instead, Jason said, well, doc, are there any other options? What if we don't do the CT scan? The doctor asked him if he was worried about paying for it, and he said, well, yeah, I'm sure it's going to be expensive, but what I'm really worried about is that CT scan that's the equivalent of 200 x-rays, right? I didn't, and three weeks ago, Jason didn't know that a CT scan was x-rays. He thought there were MRIs and ultrasounds, right? So he got a little bit of knowledge, and he learned CT scans are actually packed with a lot of radiation, and there are studies saying a kid gets two or three CT scans over the course of their life, and their probability of getting brain cancer later in life goes up by 50-plus percent. He said, Doc, I, I don't want to do the CT scan if it's not necessary. And the doctor said to him, no, like I said, it's a really minor concussion. Uh, why don't we just keep her here for another hour uh, to make sure everything's okay before we send you home? And so he didn't say this to the doctor, but he said it to me. He said, Dave, holy, put in your own expletive there. Holy cow, all I had to do was ask one question and a $3,000 CT scan and 200 x-rays of my daughter's brain disappeared. Now, he didn't question his doctor, right? He didn't question the doctor's integrity. He didn't say, hey, doc, are you just trying to run up my bill? He didn't question the doctor's experience. There's a difference between questioning your doctors and asking questions of your doctors. And just by asking a couple of simple questions, the entire experience for Jason changed. So that's a really simple example, but that wouldn't have happened if Jason hadn't gone through the classroom experience, hadn't learned some basic, basic information like the questions to ask, that a CT scan is actually the equivalent of hundreds of x-rays, and that he needs to have just a little bit more confidence to ask questions. So from there, we get into much more sophisticated things like uh, putting geofences around emergency rooms. 
so that when you're heading into an emergency room, you're reminded that you have a partner who's available. And if you want to talk to somebody before you step foot in that emergency room, you can, and it doesn't cost you an extra penny because your company has already paid for it through a monthly subscription fee. So we got it. We need you mean to like people- an app? You mean like it's an app that is geofenced? So that, so if I've got the app exactly. installed, it knows I've gone into a, an emergency room? It, I see. It, it, exactly. So in the classroom, we install what is intended to be the one and only and last mobile app that you ever use to manage your healthcare for the rest of your life. So talk to a doctor at the push of a button. You don't have to upload any information. It's already there. Not your, not a credit card, not insurance information, not your medical history, because it's already there. This is the one and only app you use to manage everything. About 1,500 video lessons on just about any topic you might want. Um, uh, custom research tools that will only search uh, using Google, but will only search websites that we've curated and found to be credible, because we all know how much nonsense is out there uh, when it comes to uh, healthcare. Your, uh, your whole medical history there in the app. Um, and so and it is, we need to give people the education and start to build their knowledge, skill, and self-confidence, but that's not all going to change overnight. So we also need to then give them a support system. And over time, you know, the next time Jason faces a medical situation, he's going to have that much more confidence to ask a few good questions uh, before he goes in for something really serious. He'll do his research using our research tools and our uh, information library. And he may call one of our doctors and say, hey, doc, I've, I've got a consultation with a neurologist on Thursday. I just want to talk it through with you and make sure I'm asking the right questions when I go in there. And so uh, Amaze is designed to be built on very low tech, which is building knowledge, skill, and confidence uh, using high tech to really reinforce that and make sure people have access to all of the resources they need whenever they need them. And your model is to work with employers, with companies, and and work with their employees through an employee-sponsored plan. Is that correct? Yeah, well, my, well, our goal is to be teaching this to high school kids, because that's when you need to start understanding how the system works. But our business model uh, begins with employers, because employers, uh, you know, have a lot to gain. Um, most Americans don't know this. 80% of Employers in the United States with 200 or more employees, which means 54,000 companies, are self-insured. Means when you present a, a card that says United Health or Aetna or Cigna on it, not actually United or Aetna or Cigna or Blue Cross paying paying the bill. It's actually your employer. All that uh, insurance company, or so-called insurance company, is doing is acting as a third-party administrator and licensing their uh, network of providers. And so employers have a lot to gain. We can go in and onboard uh, hundreds and thousands of people all at once in one employer. Much easier, you know, makes makes the sales much easier. So we're doing that because that's where the the, the business model and the money begins. But our goal is to be teaching this to high school kids, to be delivering this to Medicare and Medicaid patients. The government, med- Medicaid patients, wind up in the emergency room and cost the state and federal government an unbelievable amount of money because people. Medicaid patients can't get in to see somebody. So they wind up in the emergency room all the time. If they had access to talk to a doctor frequently, we'd be saving tons of money. And our philosophy is the more five-minute conversations you'll have with a doctor, the fewer emergency room visits, the fewer urgent care visits. Uh, You won't waste a month trying to get into your primary care physician just to get a referral to a cardiologist. Just call us. And, and get that referral. Uh, my, my primary care physicians tell me that they usually know within 30 seconds of meeting a patient if they're going to be referring them to a specialist. 
why in the world did that patient waste $150 in a month uh, to get that, that referral? So, uh, so yes, we are starting with employers, but really the goal is to be taking this, you know, every you know, biological human being on the planet needs to learn to manage their own healthcare. I would love access to this. It sounds like the concierge, well, be, kind of a concierge, a mm-hmm. little bit like pinnacle healthcare or something like that, but maybe a little bit more accessible, not a little bit, a lot more accessible. Yeah. I mean, Pinnacle, um, uh, you know, Pinnacle's focus is to help you navigate, you know, specific and serious medical conditions. And we will do that, but, but we're not designing this around patients. We're designing this around people, right? Right. We, our healthcare system, when words are used like healthcare literacy, uh, and, uh, patient empowerment, it's usually referring to things like teaching somebody to give themselves an, an insulin shot or explaining discharge orders to somebody, or teaching them how to do their own uh, rehab exercises after a knee replacement. Well, those are all patients. The people who really need to be educated are called people who aren't patients yet. They're the ones that need to ask the right questions in the first place. And so, um, uh, so yeah, so, uh, you know, Pinnacle has its place. Actually, I've used Pinnacle. Um, but, but we're designing this around all of the, the healthy people out there, as well as uh, people who have uh, medical issues going on. You both mentioned concierge medicine, and something that really stands out to me in, at least in big cities, is almost like a two-tiered medical system where we have like concierge doctors or doctors that don't take insurance that are more available, and then David, as you pointed out, kind of medic Medicaid and and um, and just other doctors that take insurance that are really hard to get in to see or very busy or basically see 30 patients a day and, and spe- don't spend very much pay- time with their patients to get to know them. Um, do you see this as being a growing trend? Do you see American healthcare moving in the direction of this two-tiered system? And do you think a maze can be a solution to that? Yeah. So first of all, I did not coin this line, but what you're describing has become known as the, you know, the wealth divide that's turning into a health divide. Um, and, and, uh, and yes, it's, it's actually already a much bigger problem than uh, many Americans realize. Uh, you, you gotta remember 25% of Americans are on Medicaid. Now our demographic, mine and yours doesn't get to see that every day, but Medicaid patients, Medicaid patients wait months to get in with a, a specialist, a Medicaid patient that needs to see a neurologist because they're having, uh, symptoms that could be say, uh, early onset of Parkinson's, can literally wait months and months to get in to see a neurologist. But nobody, n- nobody pays any attention to this because they're, they're Medicaid patients, right? And so um, this is already a huge problem. You've got many uh, physicians out there who have to take Medicaid patients or they can't participate in Medicare. But what they do is they whisper to their staff, hey, only one Medicaid patient a week, okay? And so you know, they'll call up and they'll have time on their schedule next week, but they've already got their Medicaid patient for next week. And they push that patient out another two months because they've already got a Medicaid patient scheduled every week for the next seven weeks. And so that, that the, the health divide is already getting bad. It, but even for uh, middle-class Americans uh, and wealthy Americans who haven't bought into a concierge medical uh, service, they can't get in with new primary care physicians today. Uh, most of the good ones aren't taking new uh, patients. And we're anticipating uh, a growing shortage of physicians in the country. The population is aging, so we're going to need more of them. And yet the uh, medical schools are not 
growing the number of residencies um, that are out there in the hospitals fast enough, right? Supply and demand, if we let the American Medical Association control uh, the supply of residencies and they control the number of physicians out there, which which is another factor that keeps driving up uh, the costs. And so we, yeah, we have a, uh, a fast growing system um, that is not uh, responding to market forces because it's so dysfunctional, economically dysfunctional. And yes, I see educating people in how to better navigate the system, both relieving some demand on the system altogether, so we just need a little bit less of it, and then people can much more efficiently uh, make their way through the system and find the uh, the services they need. I suppose when every American has been educated and is a more uh, competent consumer of healthcare, that they'll still be competing for the same scarce resources. But in the near, near term, I think we can uh, impact a lot of lives. When you talk about efficiencies, uh, one of the stats on your website says that the ROI for employers is five to 10 times on an investment of two to 3% of annual healthcare spending. That's pretty impressive. Um, so just wanted to point that out. Yeah. So the, uh, you know, the, the people don't realize how expensive healthcare's uh, gotten, even if you're paying for it, you often don't realize it. So to uh, cover the medical expenses of an average family of four in the United States, we're now at $28,000 a year. So that's uh, any premiums paid by the employer, premium paid by the employee, and then the out-of-pocket medical expenses. We're averaging $28,000 a year for a family of uh, four. So, I mean, so the numbers are just absolutely staggering. And you wonder why there's so many middle-class Americans uh, who are under, uninsured. If you're out there working independently in the gig economy, right, you're a you're, you're, you're a, uh, a plumber, a building contractor, a web developer. Uh, where do you come up $28,000 to cover your medical expenses? I can't not mention Europe because the Europeans seem to have this somewhat figured out. I mean, I have family in the UK, and frankly, I've seen that that nationalized health system doesn't function. It functions quite in the same way that you're describing Medicaid, um, to be honest. But um, definitely costs are lower. Have you studied that system or, you know, a system of yeah, a particular yeah. country? Yeah. So, you know, the countries people often point to are Canada, the UK, Sweden, France, Japan, Singapore, Australia. And I will tell you, none of those countries have better healthcare systems. They just have different systems with different problems and we don't want them. I mean, think about how many, in how many other ways the United States is the envy of the world. Um, the idea that we're going to go settle for somebody else's uh, inefficient healthcare system is crazy. We still have in this country the best trained medical professionals in the world, the best medical technologies, and so we should be striving to have the very best he healthcare system in the world, not settling for the, the cleanest, dirty shirt. You mentioned the UK, so I'll just share a quick experience of somebody who works for me. She said to me one day, Dave, I don't think I'm going to be able to travel in October. And I said, well, what do you mean? You travel for a living. And she said, well, I, I need a, an MRI on my knee um, and it's going to be sometime in October. This was in July. And I said, what do you mean sometime in October? She said, well, what they do is um, they, they give you a, a, a window of time, a couple of weeks, and then they call you 24 hours uh, before and tell you when you can come in for your MRI. 
So here in July, they're saying you've got to block these entire two weeks. We're still not going to tell you exactly when your MRI is going to be. We'll let you know 24 hours before uh, when you can come in for your MRI. That is not a system that Americans want. I've got uh, Canadian employees. They schedule most of their health care when they're here visiting my office in Denver. It's when they go see a dentist, when they come to Denver, not in Canada. And in every one of those countries, uh, uh, people with money, quote unquote, buy up. They pay for services. So just like in this country. So so these systems, think of them as Medicaid for all, uh, not even Medicare for all that they have in these other countries. Uh, There is not one out there that we actually want. And we have such potential to have the very best healthcare system in the world if we would just get the economics of it right. Well, I think even regardless of how you stand on that issue, and there would definitely be some, and I'm sure you've had them, some uh, vigorous discussions about that topic, just sort of about the Canadian system versus the U.S. system. I think one thing, regardless of how you feel about it, the the U.S. system is the one we have. And it's a complicated system and it's difficult to change. And so what's so admirable about your work is that you're doing something about the system that we have, which we're going to have in some shape or form for some time anyway. So I think regardless of of the point of view, um, and, I, and I don't even know where I stand on that one. Um, maybe we'll have to have a cup of coffee next time you're in Dallas and we can learn a little bit more from you on that. But, um, but I find it to be just incredible. And, and maybe just the last question for, for you is, you know, 10 years in the future, you know, paint us a picture of what Amaze looks like for you as a company. Yeah, so uh, think of Amaze as Amazon Prime. What I'm trying to do is put us right at the center of your uh, healthcare uh, life. And, and, and in terms of our healthcare system, if you picture it as a, three side, as a triangle um, with payer, provider, and patient, right, the three components of the system, just picture it as an upside-down triangle with the payer and the provider at the top and the patient at the bottom. That's our system today. What I'm looking for Amaze to do is to flip that system upside down and put the patient on top. I'm not trying to blow up the whole payer-provider paradigm uh, as much as I would like to. I think that is a losing cause. You know, we're talking about the largest industry on the planet, the size of Germany's econ- entire economy. The U.S. healthcare system, if it were an economy of its own, would be the fifth largest economy on the planet. The idea that we're going to displace these uh, companies that are worth $100 billion each, um, it, you know, is, sure, we all like to talk about being disruptors, but I don't think it's, uh, it's practical right now. So I'm looking to bring, or I am bringing a solution to market that, as you, uh, as you say, kind of works with the current paradigm. It doesn't reject the current paradigm. It just says we need to flip that triangle upside down and put patients uh, in charge of the decision-making, and the payers and providers will win too because we all know when, when you do things wisely in business, good companies thrive. They thrive in the face of competition. They thrive in the face of well-educated consumers. So I think all parties win, and, and we start moving towards the very best healthcare system in the world, and we can do it with our current payer-provider-patient paradigm if we just put patients on top. That's incredible. Thank you so much for all of your hard work, um, you know, just and your passion. 
put towards this issue. And thank you so much for your time today, David. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm going to go dispute some medical bills right now. <laughs> I think we'll both do that. All right. Thanks. You've got my email address. All right. Take care. Bye. You too. Bye-bye. Once again, it's clear that a business leader with good intentions can create an impressive social, environmental, and ethical impact. There is always a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company, and we can all make a difference. You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at EA Stevens. And follow me on Instagram at Conscious Investor. Until next time. Bye, everyone. Thank you.